Welcome to another episode of before you. Welcome to another. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host Leo Flowers. Today's episode is brought to you by Forever Me Apparel. Forever Me Apparel has their newest collection out now. From beanies to shirts to hoodies to bags, they have it all shipped right to your door. You can find all of it on forevermeapparel.com. And I love it because they support the mission of Before You Kill Yourself podcast. Mental health affects everyone, either directly or indirectly. It's very unfortunate. And what's even worse is that nobody is talking about it. Forever Me Apparel has donated over 250 pieces of clothing to people struggling, and they don't even have any intentions of stopping now. At forevermeapparel.com, they are open and always looking to help support mental health. Keep fighting and keep swimming. It only gets better. Get your beanie, shirts, and hoodies, and bags over at forevermeapparel.com. Today's guest, I'm very excited to have uh, Stephen C. Hayes. He is a foundation professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Reno. He is the author of nearly 650 scientific articles and of 46 books, including Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, which for a time was the best-selling self-help book in the United States. And his new book, A Liberated Mind, Dr. Hayes has shown how human thought leads to human suffering and is an expert on the importance of acceptance, mindfulness, and values. He originated acceptance and commitment therapy or, quote, ACT, um, which is one of the most researched new psychological intervention methods worldwide over the last 20 years. He is ranked among the top most cited psychologists in the world. Please go to stephenchayes.com for more information on his work. Today's episode is so powerful. It was such a delight to have him on. I had so many aha moments. I actually felt, uh, I actually brought up some feelings of sadness because um, I felt relieved that some of the things that he was saying resonated so deeply, uh, including we talked about psychological flexibility. We talked about how joy no longer has to be threatening anymore. I, I, that, I, that concept, I can't, when you listen about how joy no longer has to be a threat, it's going to be such a, a powerful uh, 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 segment for you, and I'm sure will shift a lot of things uh, in your life for you. We even get into how to put the mental brakes on. You know, a lot of us have these loops that run in our head, these thoughts that, the, uh, that we can't seem to get a handle on or wrangle in. And he gives us, and I mean, these are some tactics that, trust me, you, you've never heard before unless you're a huge follower of uh, Stephen C. Hayes. Uh, but he gives us about four really great mental uh, breaks that we can use. He also talks about how we discover our values. And this is really powerful because uh, especially now when people are searching for purpose and meaning and uh, what our true north is, and he gives us a really cool way of discovering what it is we truly value. Um, and then we have a really 
powerful moment when I uh, read to him a small little message from, say small little, but uh, a small piece of a message from uh, Dr. Breen. And if you don't know who Dr. Breen is, uh, she ended her life. She was a doctor in New York. And I, I was reading the article in the New York Times to t- try to unpack what led up to those moments. And Dr. Stephen C. Hayes's response to what she wrote is so powerful and going to save so many lives. It's so unfortunate that she's not here to hear what he said uh, to her. Um, and then we talk about how to walk inside the pain. You know, instead of turning away from the pain or running away from our pain or discomfort, how do we walk inside the pain and how do we be present? And, and there's so much more that we talk. It's such a, a, a great episode. Is one I'm going to have to listen to numerous times. And also what I really love is that he shares with us how to read self-help books. Oh, especially his. And and this is powerful because so many people, so many of us, we read so many self-help books and we're like, nothing's really changing. I mean, they're not doing anything. But he breaks down how to read his book so that it has uh, a maximum impact on your growth and development and, and your awareness and your openness and, and so that you feel empowered to make the next steps. Uh now, with that said, you can go to thrivewithleo.com uh, for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. And also remember, the show notes link to uh, the, the guests that I have. And also, we have all the numbers, and not all the numbers, but we have a lot of the numbers for the suicide hotlines, not just locally here in America, but also uh, overseas. We have numbers to the, uh, the Trevor Project. Uh, and uh, just and even if it's not a number that you, if you're not comfortable with that, there are groups, there are online groups, there are chats. There's tons of free services available. And if you're still struggling with finding a service that works for you, you can use one of the services to refer you to a service. So you can always call the the 800 number and ask them and say. Here's what I'm, I'm struggling with. It could be fi- money and finances. They will direct you to services to help you. But you have to ask the question. You have to ask for help. Meet us halfway, and, and we'll extend our hand the rest of the way. With that said, let's just jump into the episode. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, one, because we both have tinnitus in our ears. Or oh, uh, tinnitus. And uh, as a kid, I was never diagnosed with it. And so I would hear the ringing and I had no idea it was coming from my ears. So oh, yeah. I spent my entire childhood running all over the place trying to find the yeah, where source is it? of the ringing. And, but you you developed it at the in your 60s, correct? Yeah, it was more like 50s, I guess. And um, my brother had it when he was uh, 14, 15, et cetera. But I am pretty sure I got it from my punk rock era, um, you know, standing in front of uh, ginormous uh, speakers kicking out, you know, 180 decibels or something. But 
I lived at a time in Greensboro, North Carolina, and um, the bands would come from Atlanta to D.C. And so really big bands of that era, you might not know that brand of music, but like Black Flag, people like that came through. And uh, that was wonderful in little small bars in North Carolina. But boy, uh, you hit my age. I just want to tell all these kids who have the earphones in their ears and they're cranking up their iPhones. Uh, be careful. Well, it's cool now because now the iPhone uh, tells you in the health app, like if your decibel levels have been are like, uh, are they healthy, unhealthy, too loud? But I'm sure they're not checking that that health app on their iPhone. Yeah, I'm sure they're not. It was kind of a lesson for me because things that I worked on for many years with myself with regard to anxiety and with my clients with regard to all kinds of things, chronic pain, depression, anxiety, you name it. Um, you know, when it showed up in my ears, it didn't even occur to me to apply the same skills. And I went three years with audiologists and you know, wearing earplugs not to get further damage when I was riding on my jet skis, et cetera, et cetera, before I finally, uh, it occurred to me to apply my life's work to it. And then it handled it in a matter of a couple of days completely. And it stayed that way since, I mean, it still rings. It's just, I don't care about it anymore, but, um, we've now done trials, you know, with uh, people who are suffering with it and, uh, you know, if you, you know the data on it, some people really, really, really get distressed. I mean, there are sort of tinnitus-related suicide instances and so forth. There's certainly a lot of anxiety and depression, too. So it's just like chronic pain. It's just like any physical thing. If if you don't know how to carry it with you and attend to what's important, you, you can get wrapped around it just like a, you know, a rope around an axle, and a lot of people do. So, you know, I just, speaking of which, I just watched your TEDx about how to put on the mental brakes. And one of the strategies you recommend is to name your brain. Did you name your uh, tinnitus, your tinnitus? I didn't. No, no, that's a good, that would have been a good thing to do. That would have helped. You know, it's never occurred to me to do, to, to suggest that to people. But that's an awesome idea. Of course it would help. You know, because anything that helps you to look at something instead of looking from something gives you more freedom, more space, more room to move. And when you're looking at your emotions, I don't mean in a dissociative way, but I mean in a way that allows you a little bit of perspective taking and awareness. Um, Same thing with sensations. You know, we do that with pain. We do a lot with sports, high performers, you know, people who are doing really, really difficult physical things. And over and over, it's the same lesson. So, of course, it would work with noise in your ears. Great idea, Leah. I'm going to steal it, man. I'm going to, I'm going to put it. That, that's all that's yours. I, I can't wait work. to see it in the next uh, TED Talk that you do. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, in all seriousness, there's a guy who does uh, a lot of t- uh, tinnitus work in uh, Sweden, a guy named Gerhard Anderson, who did some of the early ACT trials. And uh, I'll suggest it to him when he tweaks his uh, protocol. Can you uh, give us a few of those mental breaks that you did discuss in that TEDx? I, I thought it was so riveting, and they're, they're tools that, because, you know, I struggle with uh, chronic suicidality and depression and chronic pain, uh, and also the the tinnitus that I'm like, wow, I wish I had, you know, these tools when I was younger, uh, but 
uh, and when I was, you know, watching the video, I was like, oh my God, this is remarkable. Can you share some of those ways that we can put on mental? Yeah, I, I could. And actually you mentioned younger, we've done this with kids. We, uh, so I'll mention the methods are uh, applicable to all of us, but uh, it's actually quite uplifting. And, and we're in a situation right now worldwide with COVID, et cetera, where uh, a few of these methods might help lighten our load a little bit, and maybe those of our children. But uh, in the, the TEDx talk you're talking about, it's one of two that I've done. Uh, I walked through about 12 different methods. We call them diffusion methods. That's a made-up word. The initial name for it was deliteralization, and I could never figure out how to say that fast. So we made it up, not diffusion, but defusion, like defusing a bomb where what you're trying to do is, is you know, try to pull the elements of, of language and meaning and reference apart so that you see your mind doing what it's doing, but you still have some ability to move. You mentioned giving your mind a name. That's one, but... Um, uh, a few others, like uh, say, uh, take take a suicidal thought you're, ta- you're talking about. Even something that heavy, that serious, in terms of its form, in terms of what it says, you have to do with it. Uh, sing it. Just sing it. Take take turn it into a rap song. Turn it into something uh, that fits a musical style that you, that you like. Uh, if you want to just try this out and you know, take something that really hits you hard with a, a negative self-evaluative thought, uh, sing it to the tune, tune of happy birthday and just watch what happens. And don't do it to ridicule yourself. That's not the point. Don't do it to sort of make fun of yourself. That's not it either, although we are funny creatures, frankly. Some of this is funny in kind of an odd way. But, you know, it, it kind of... You know, depression operas just don't land the same way as entering into the cognitive network that that little mental spider is spinning where it says that life's not worth living and you're unlovable and and all the rest of it. Uh, Take a difficult thought that normally would punch you pretty hard emotionally or push you to do things that you know aren't healthy, aren't supportive, aren't aren't values-based, aren't loving, aren't kind to yourself, aren't good to the world. Take one of one of those and uh, say it in the voice of a cartoon character, or put it in the voice of your least favored politician. Uh, I've got one right now that I could definitely do. I bet you could guess who he, who he is. Um, uh, you could um, repeat it, distill it down to a single word. Better if it's a single word. If you have to, you can get it only to two words. That's okay. Say that word about once per second or a little faster for at least 30 seconds out loud. Like if you're uh, unlovable because your girlfriend dumped you and whatever, just do it down to word like unlovable or ugly or stupid or mean or anything else that bothers you and then say it fast for about 30 seconds out loud. And what will happen is the distress comes down about 15 seconds out and believability, you know, actually sort of taking the thought to mean what it says comes down by the end of that 30 second period. And you have a little bit of a sense that it's just the thought. Uh, Take a thought 
like that, and instead of just thinking it, just add this to the front part of it. I'm having the thought that, and then say the thought, whatever it is. And if, um, uh, if it's a feeling, if it's an emotion, instead of just feeling it, say, I'm having the emotion that. And then name it. It's real important to name it. Felt emotions that are named and observed and are seen as emotions land entirely differently. Your, the part of your brain that lights up is entirely different than what happens when you just let those thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations just roll through you in a normal way where it's pushing you around and uh, poking you to do stuff and you're not hardly even aware of what the it is. So name it, name it by kind, and then say what it is. I'm having the thought that, I'm having the feeling that, I'm having the urge that, I'm having the evaluation that. You can't do that to your friends without them thinking you're a little crazy, but you can do it to yourself and you can do it inside your head. And if maybe if you've explained to your mate or your friends or your girlfriend or boyfriend about it, you might even get some practices like that at home because uh, in, in therapy sessions, I do this with my clients and it's known to help. I just named about six of about 300 well-known methods that have been developed by an entire community of uh, folks doing the acceptance and commitment therapy work or ACT, which is the stuff I'm known for, which is uh, one of the most researched methods of psychological intervention over the last 20 years with a worldwide presence and, and all of that. But it, and it fits into other things that are happening that are not just act. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not chest thumping here. I'm, you know, I think our entire culture is trying to figure out how do normal people carry the weight of the modern world without having it bring us to our knees. And we're constantly exposed to pain and judgment and comparison. And that's hard for anyone anywhere. And, we got a little device in our pocket. We can just click on and see pain, judgment, and comparison instantaneously. And uh, we didn't somehow immediately, ever since the phones showed up, become different creatures. And so it still lands hard, and we have to figure out a way to carry the weight differently than just uh, what's happening in, among young people with a level of depression, suicidality, anxiety, and so forth that's orders of magnitude higher than it was with our grandparents. I'm glad that you, you took the time to share uh, ways that we could put on the mental brakes or how to diffuse uh, our, our thoughts and, and those uh, negative uh, ideas. And, and, you know, I feel like sometimes when, when these things are, are discussed or listed or talked about, I could see, you know, listeners be like, all right, does this really work? And this is another thing. But I want to highlight four of them and and just uh, so that people know that this isn't I'm not just I just don't have guests on because they wrote a book and blah, blah, blah. I, I want you guys to know that uh, these things resonate with me. Like when we talk about name your brain um, or, you know, name your tinnitus or, or even name the pain. Uh, Winston Churchill called his depression the black dog. And that yeah. was how he dealt with it. He gave it a name. He gave it an image. And so when you study history, you get to see uh, how people uh, who've been high achievers have used some of these techniques 
uh, and, and to deal with uh, whatever pain they were going through. When you talk about seeing your thought, and, and that just sounds so ridiculous, but there are so many. You, you talked about rap. Biggie Smalls, one of the, the you know the best rappers ever, had a song called "Suicidal Thoughts," and and he put pen to paper, and that was his way of coping with it. So when you say sing it, rap it, you know, do a depression opera, like artists, Amy Winehouse, there's so many, there's so many artists who have, that's probably not the best example, but there's so many artists who have employed these uh, concepts. Um, I love, especially the one about repeat the word, you know, for 20 seconds or 30 seconds because it diffuses the, the gravity of it. Uh, when I took improv, they would have you repeat, uh, you would stand across from someone and you would both just keep repeating the same word back and forth. And within minutes, you would see the energy of the word change. Sometimes like it would be red, 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 red. And, and it, it just took on a different tone. And by the end, it, it was nothing like whatever you started with. So, uh, I, you see that in improv games. And then the last one uh, where you talk about repeat the phrase in a different voice, that's just fun. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> that's just a blast. I would assume, Dr. Hayes, that, uh, you know, to develop the acceptance and uh, commitment therapy and to, to have so many tools and tactics that uh, there was a struggle maybe from your childhood that this, that, that, you know, made you go down this path? Uh, did you struggle with depression as a kid or what was your, what was your, your weight? Well, no, my thing was anxiety. I, I, um, you know, I had a lot of pain in, in my household and a lot of shrinks are like that. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. My mom was OCD and depressed. And, um, you know, I knew it was a little bit there was something wrong. If she would stand in front of the oven, she'd put the the door down a little bit, kind of put her rear end there to heat to heat herself up, you know, not to harm herself, but just you know, kind of. And she wouldn't move for months. I mean, she wouldn't move for months. She was always there, and I knew that was a little bit odd, even at age seven or eight or whatever. And uh, so. You know, and I, and as I got to be older as a teenager, saw domestic violence in the home. And they're just and both loving people, by the way, wonderful, kind, loving people and in misery and getting each other's way. They loved each other, but they just didn't know how to get out of their own way. And so I decided to be a psychologist. But uh, early on as a professor, assistant professor, I developed a panic disorder. Uh, I tell that story in another a TEDx talk, and in a tour, so you can Google it and, and see it. But in in, in uh, two or three years, spun down to the point where, you know, I couldn't give a lecture to five undergraduates without panicking, and uh, you know, my, my bottom hitting bottom was thinking that I was having a heart attack at two or three in the morning, and uh, you know, I'm trying to contemplate whether I should call the ambulance and so forth. And then I realize in this whole episode that, no, no, this is just another sick version of a panic attack. It's just, you know, I can't even trust my own body anymore. And you wake up from a dead sleep already and 
so um, in that TED, I, I walked through uh, this kind of night on the carpet where I catch that there's a voice in my head talking to me. And, you know, we all have that voice in your head. You, we've got our thoughts and they seem really familiar. But, you know, when you get wrapped around anxiety, depression, just substance abuse urges or something like that, it becomes so dominant, so central, so dictatorial. So, you know, it doesn't allow any freedom, you know. And you think it's you. I mean, you you don't even notice that you're talking to yourself in a way. You're just being... Uh, dictated to, and uh, I said out loud at two uh, thirty or three in the morning uh, to this voice. Had kind of an out of body experience that I don't know who you are, but apparently you can make me suffer. But I tell you one thing: you can't do. You can't make me turn from my own experience. You can't do it. So I caught that it was telling me to run from fear, to run from sadness, to run from my body, to run from urges, to run, 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 hide, fight, run, hide, fight, run, hide, fight. And, you know, when you're struggling, that's the dictatorial command because those are the things that would protect you if something really dangerous to you showed up in the external world. But your own history can't be treated that way because if... There's no way for you to run fast enough to run away from your history, to run away from your memories of, you know, watching your mom and dad fight or, or, or watch your mom suffer so or your dad drink and become so scary, etc. So, um, yeah, I walked into this space and you're right a lot. But if you do it, you'll find a lot of wisdom teachers there already there in our spiritual and religious traditions, but not just that, in art and literature and music and dance and uh, graphic arts and so forth. It's the people who know a lot about emotion and a lot about feelings who sometimes are the best cultural instructors. But those voices get overwhelmed in the modern world, I think, by commercial culture and by a lot of teachings that tell us if you just have the right house, the right spouse, the right amount of money, the right drug, the right beer, the right car, the right something, that you'd be okay. And, you know, you kind of delay looking at yourself in the mirror and really coming to terms with what you see there. And uh, so, I, you know, I got up off that carpet with that little... Uh, uh, declaration of independence. You know, you're you're not going to make me run from me. Inside a promise, you know that I'm I'm never running from me again. I'm not going to do it. Now, of course, in small ways, I constantly do it. We all do, but that's okay. You catch yourself, just like you if you're riding a bicycle. You'd catch that you're getting out of balance, and you adjust. You don't have to do a face plant into the asphalt in order to learn how to keep balance. You adjust to the small things that happen with your mind knocking you off balance. And if you do that using that metaphor of bicycle, life moves forward, you can keep moving forward. So the act work is humble in the sense that it's in a way just trying to put in science terms that can be tested and then put out into the culture things that we've known right along. Can I share with you a little thing about how we've known that right along? 
please do. Well, we did this. We did a little experiment where around the world in all different kind of places, we said to people this, said, think of something that really, really is hard for you. That is not just a situation, but something psychological, something sort of on the inside. And then show me with your body, but not in words, you at your worst when dealing with that. And then we literally took a picture. Now show me with your body, not with words, you at your best when dealing with that. And we've just recently completed a score of these hundreds of pictures from around the world. People wearing burkas, you know, people in their, on the out, you know, wearing shorts on the beach, people, you know, just everywhere, all different kind of countries and cultures. Universally, what do you do when you're saying you at your worst? Your head comes down, your eyes close, your arms and hands come in, you fold at the waist, your feet, your 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 knees come up, your your fists may clench uh, into a, your hands may clench into a fist, your jaws may kind of uh, show tension. You're expressing a posture of defense of protection, of withdrawing, of turning inward, universally, around the world, doesn't matter the culture. You at your best, head comes up, eyes open, arms and hands go out. Your feet might spread out, you stand erect, you know, you're ready to go. You're interacting with the world, you're open, you're, and your hands are free. And if you unpack that, it means that we all know that hiding and fighting and defending and entering into a fetal position is not the strong place to be. But we feel as though we have to do it because we're getting battered by the voices, the voice within. Sometimes the voice is plural for some folks, but by our memories, our thoughts, our feelings, our urges. Conversely, if you can kind of stand up, open your eyes, show up, see what's possible, carry it with you. There's hundreds, there's thousands of methods out there that you'll find that will support you in that journey. And you've mentioned some, Leo, so you, I, I, I'll say it right back at you, dude. Uh, my guess is you came by some of this wisdom through your own suffering. And um, that's the way you get it often, because you can see what doesn't work, and then you begin to notice what does work, and then life becomes a teacher. Most of us have actually learned the lessons. It's just the, the, the part of us that's in between our ears that hasn't learned it yet. And frankly, it never will because it's just a problem-solving tool. It's trying to figure out how to eliminate bad and create good, where often what you need to do is just to show up with what is, and that's a different agenda. That's not the same as doing your taxes or fixing your car. It's something more like looking at a beautiful sunset or listening to the story of a crying child. It's it's just being present and observing and noticing and listening and appreciating, being open and aware and connecting. That is really important. But the problem-solving machine in between years doesn't get that. It wants to fix, repair, make different, make go away, diminish. And yeah, that's fine with some things, but it's not fine with your abuse history or that rape that happened. It's not going anywhere. There's no delete button in your brain. It's it's coming with you. So what are you going to do with it? Well, you better figure out something positive to do with it or it's going to steer you right off the edge of the cliff. 
You know, people, if you look at the suicide notes, you're talking about suicidality. 65% of the suicide notes say, when I'm dead, I won't hurt so bad. And sometimes adding, and other people will be sorry. That may be completely true, but it has a small side effect. You're dead, dude. <laughs> yeah, so really, is you know, our model of uh, success is, if your model of success is no pain, then you don't have a way of, uh, you know, living your life in such a way that you can really have gains either. That no pain, no gain kind of thing is uh, is real in the world within. I love that idea. Your model of success is no pain. I, I like that 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 phrase because we, we are doing so many things to try to numb ourselves through food, TV, and music. Um, and it's like that that idea of like, Instead of trying to feel better, learn how to feel, comma, better. Exactly. Um, Instead of feeling better, feel better. And it's, uh, it's a completely different agenda, completely different. It works completely different. It lives completely different. But you got to usually be beat up before you'd come to it because most of us are stupid enough that we just try to treat ourselves like a problem to be solved, like some sort of freaking math problem. And uh, it's only when life punches you in the nose enough that you go, you, you sometimes see or you're lucky enough to be around, uh, you know, a caring community or the right therapist or the right uh, spouse or parents or whatever who will guide you into a healthier direction. You were talking about suicide notes and uh, in the New York Times, I'm one of those rare birds that still reads the physical newspaper. I still get it delivered. Uh, <laughs> I, I do it cover to cover. I try to. I, I, I love it. Stuff. Do you read it every day or just every uh, day? I love every it. Day. It's the one thing. Cup of coffee, newspaper. That's it. <laughs> uh, I, I, so I'm a tea guy. So I'm tea and newspaper, and I'm, I'm that's my happy place. Like I, I don't need anything more for the for a few hours. Uh, and one of my favorite sections is the obituaries. I love to see how people like live to be a hundred and like how they live a complete life in their perspectives. Uh, but there was one article in there uh, about uh, a doctor who ended her life. And we're talking about suicide notes. One of the things that she, she, she actually didn't leave a note, but one of the things that she said uh, close to uh, ending her life was, quote, I couldn't help anyone. I couldn't do anything. I just wanted to help people and I couldn't do anything, end quote. She was a doctor, and this is her in reference to uh, dealing with the, the COVID crisis. How would... Uh, oh, I saw that story. Yeah. How would uh, acceptance and commitment therapy uh, respond to that? Had she come in and this was her, her, her thinking? Yeah. Well, one thing I would validate the feeling absolutely. And, and you know, uh, I think that choice... You come into the the world and you kind of look around and see how crazy it is and and where it goes. That choice of am I going to live or die is is that existential thing is something that makes life courageous because we all know and you know most people first have thoughts like that when they're in elementary school. We all know that we could leave by our own hand. What I'd say to this person, number one, I'd want to walk her inside 
the pain that she feels and the hopelessness that she feels around not being of help. But then I'd want to also walk inside what are her values? What is what are the qualities of being and doing that she wants to put into her behavior? And, you know, right inside, I wanted to help and I couldn't, you flip it over, is how can I put into my moments something that would be helpful? And, like, imagine that doctor writing that suicide note and putting it out there. And instead of that last sentence, and by the time you read this, I will be no more, that sentence it was, and even with these thoughts, I'm going in tomorrow and I'm going to fight this fight one more day with this virus. If you put that on the internet, think of how many people you might have lifted up. So your mind's saying the only way that I can be contribute is this particular way. There's a human being in there that can make a choice that says, here are the qualities that I want to put into my life moments. And that's what moves you. It also moves other people looking at you. And 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 he, here's the way I could I could say that if you want to figure out kind of what your values are, here if I could have that person in front of me for just three minutes, I won't do the full three minutes here, but you'll see where I'd go. I'd say, okay. Is there anybody in your life that you've ever met anywhere who if you could pick them? to come and be a guide to you, to talk to you right now, to be an inspiration to you, to help you actually face what is most dark right here, right now, as you stand on the edge of this cliff and you're thinking, this is it. If you could pick somebody who'd be of help to you, useful to you, a guide to you, who would you pick? And then if they did that much, I'd say, what was that person like? How was he or she with you when they were with you? What did he or she do? What did they stand for? If you could write down the values that motivated them, what would it be? And, you know, the kind of the turn there would be, and in your actually picking that person, aren't those also your values? Always the answer is yes. It's what... The person wants to put in their behavior. And then I could say, okay, here, see this half-written suicide note here? How are you going to finish the rest of this note? Like, you have an option here. You can write a story here. You don't know the evidence, what's going to be in the story. You didn't know that COVID was going to be in the story. You didn't know that death was going to be in the story. You didn't know that being overwhelmed at work to the point where you feel as though you can't do anything was going to be in the story. That wasn't up to you. But what is up to you is what is this story about as a theme? Are you writing a tragedy here? Or are you writing a hero's journey here? And as you write this next piece, I want you to think of that person you just picked, that hero you just picked, that guide you picked, and the values they stood for, because you internalized them enough to pick that person. And now just imagine that person's watching you write this note and watching you finish this story. What is this about? How are you going to write it? And so I, you know, I stand with people and the right to... Uh, to die. I stand with people on that. I will argue as, with everything I've got for life 
But I respect the choice because that's what makes human life so courageous. We start with empty and meaningless. We take the step of why don't we kill ourselves? And then on the other side of that, if you get to the other side, then you can be about anything. It's up to you. It's not dictated to you. And so I would invite her in to the possibility of a hero's journey that would really fit what she most deeply want. But I'm not going to judge her if, if she's going to, I'm not going to help her either. I'm not giving her the gun. I'm not giving her the pills. I'm not doing that. Respectfully, I'm, I'm not part of that. But I do actually send uh, contributions to folks who argue for laws that allow people to make that choice. But if I had the opportunity, I'd stand right next to that person and say what I'm saying right now and just invite them into life and living and loving and contributing and making a difference in a way that you want to, not because you have to, not because the dictator says to, but because that's your free choice. And that's the hero's journey we're all on, I think. That's the hero's journey of humanity itself. Can we learn how to be together in ways that deals with racism and sexism and poverty and, you know, the global warming and all the rest? I don't know. Let's see. What I love about that, um, you know, in terms of figuring out what your friend, who your friend is and, and what do they value, et cetera, et cetera. There's an article written about, if you really want to know what uh, the your what someone's going to vote for, you ask them how they think their neighbor is going to vote, and it it usually aligns with what they'll actually do versus what they'll say they'll do. You know, it's always like that when somebody's like, "Oh, uh, my my cousin needs some advice." It's like, okay, really, you need the advice, and you're using your cousin. And, and so that idea of like, who is it that you'd want to go on this journey with? Who would you want to be with? That, that is a sign of what your values are. And I'm so glad you answered that because my next question was going to be, how do we discover our values so that we line it up? Uh, we line our life up with that and know when we are a bit off balance uh, when we're riding our bike. So I appreciate yeah. you uh, explaining that. Yeah, I've given you two answers to that. One is our heroes, their guides. You know, one is what a kind of story do you want to write if you're writing the theme but not the content and the characters? And then the other two I can think of are if you take what you really struggle with that's really painful, flip it over and think about what does that suggest you care about? Because we only hurt where we care. If we didn't care, hurt wouldn't be meaningful, Yeah. And then the last one is if you think of a really sweet moment in whatever domain you're thinking about, whether it's work or relationships or uh, creation of beauty, whatever it is, you think of a really sweet moment in a domain, unpack what's inside that sweet moment. And I bet you got your answer. And how can you put that into your behavior? Not as a result. I'm not talking about, oh, I want to be rich or I want to be famous or I want applause. No, think like you think of your heroes, you know, what they stood for is what is what lasts. And it's not, you know, the car they drove or the how many home you know rooms in their house. So sweet, sad heroes and stories. Those are the four ways that I know 
to uh, walk inside your values choices. Uh, I love that. Uh, the, I, that's one of those books I want to read too. I keep they keep the book uh, "Hero's Journey" by Joseph C. Campbell. Oh yeah, coming up, and uh, I, I now I'm really encouraged to uh, to write that. I, I I love that you said uh, where you hurt is where you care because the word hurt for me is one of those words that I'm just now becoming comfortable with. Uh, I grew up in a household where, you know, mom was either pissed or cool and there was no room for gray. Like you, you didn't say you were hurt. Uh, even when I played football, you didn't say you were hurt. That meant you were coming out the game. And uh, at the age of 44 now, I'm realizing the most of my anger is stemming from uh, the fact that I feel hurt and I feel so vulnerable when I yeah. express that, especially to my girlfriend, where I say, what you just said hurt. And, uh, and I had a friend make fun of my, my food choices one day. I was, I was like eating like a pint of ice cream and like 20 donuts <laughs> or something. And she's like, yeah, you and your food. You know, I forgot what she said, but it really, it really stung. And I, and I said to her, I was like, what you said really hurt. And, uh, but it felt liberating at the same time. It felt scary, vulnerable, and liberating at the can you talk more about this feeling of hurt and 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 it's a sign of what we care about yeah well vulnerable means woundable and the original word vuln was a wound and and you know if if you're spending your time trying to keep from being wounded the problem is there's lots of things in your history and in your circumstances that would wound you and when you feel the possibility, let me give you an example, um, you feel the possibility of, of something positive, you'll feel the threat of something negative. So, for example, if you've been betrayed in love and now you're back in the game and, and, and if you're early on but you've, you found somebody that you're kind of, you know, you can sense that there might be something there, and there's a, a pull to, like, Start a fight. Don't answer the phone. Uh, you know, maybe have, uh, you know, uh, get somebody else involved. Uh, you know, maybe I should be dating somebody else. Why? Because you you feel the vulnerability. But what you're feeling there is the possibility. That's why you could be wounded, you know, if you really. So, you know, the the openness to to feeling that goes beyond evaluation is what allows you to, to, to love. It's what allows you to have joy. We've done research on this. And if you want to close down fear, anxiety, sadness, etc., what happens is when people are really dedicated to that, when things show up that are joyful, connected, happy, uh, that are, uh, deep and moving and meaningful is that you, you tend to trash those things. The bigger you are, the harder you fall. If you really want something, you're going to be disappointed. If you trust that person, what would happen? What would you feel if they betrayed you? And so you start heading towards the happy numb, except the happy numb is not happy. And so, you know, the open poets talk about this, you know, the clear bronze of the world, the Sufis, etc. But you just look at any of the 
the poets you like, I bet you, you're going to find them talking about this idea that there's, you're kind of like there's a space that's got hollowed out inside you as you open up to your own pain. And you can pour love into that space, but not a one drop more than the space you've carved out, because that's all that'll contain. And so if you've ever been, you know, really wounded and come out on the other side with a sense of openness, with being able to say yes to life, even with the wound, even with the pain, you know how much stronger, open, flexible you feel because, you know, joy is not threatening anymore. Love is not threatening anymore. But in our normal mind, mode of mind, yeah, we like it, but pretty soon we're detuning it. Pretty soon we're saying no instead of yes, even when it's right there. It's kind of like if you had a banquet on the table and you decided you just get down and chew on the table leg. I mean, we've got people around us who would love us, who would play with us, who would interact with us, who would contribute to our lives, who care about us, who would add to our lives kind of with intellectual play or physical play or relationship play. How often, just think about how often do you walk by opportunities in your normal life inside this kind of uh, more automatic, mindless, protective space we can get into where eventually it'll all be over, which is true. And it's not over yet. We're here now. And uh, what are the choices you're going to make? If you're able to open up to pain and vulnerability, then you're able to open up. I mean, you, to to the possibility of connection, love, success. Um, somebody who's really, really concerned about fear of failure is headed towards more limited success. If you're really concerned about not being betrayed, and you're really, you ever been around somebody who's really like that, constantly work, you know, worried about betrayal, it drives people away. And and so it goes, you know, in almost every area of life. If you're really unwilling, there's kind of a rule in there, and it's in the early act literature, it came from the human potential movement, which is a simple little rule, which is if you're not willing to have it, you've got it. If you're not willing to lose it, you've lost it. And so be careful about letting your mind tell you that you only get to live when, and then makes this list of uh, sugar soup, happy, happy, joy, joy kind of fantasies, Candyland fantasies that end up looking nice but playing very poorly. Poets know about it. Shrinks know about it. Often it takes a kind of bit of living before you realize uh, that's how it works. Yeah, you were talking about, uh, you know, I'll be happy when, uh, uh, I'll be joyful when. And, you know, one of the six principles I, I understand of, of ACT is uh, being present. And when we think when we're focused too much on the past or on the future, then we're not grounded uh, in the present moment, do do you have techniques for how someone can be become more present? I know we talked about awareness and where our values lie, but are there other techniques for for being present? Yeah, you know, a, 
a good technique to work on that won't look like immediately that it's working on being present, but it, or it might, but you may not understand why it's so central, is attentional flexibility of being able to narrow or broaden, to shift or stay. And so I like working with my clients or with myself too to practice narrow, broaden, shift, and stay. You can do it just doing it. Just I'll give you an example. You're listening to music. Try listening to just the bass line. If you're a bass player, I guarantee you that's what you'd be doing and you'd be noticing. But most of us know, you know, occasionally we notice the bass, but we probably don't focus on it. We're probably more focused on the melody or whatever. But just try the bass. But after you do that for a while, now try just the drums, just the drums, just the, the whatever the percussion thing is. But now try just the melody. But now try to pick out just one instrument if you got multiple instruments going on in the music. Okay? But now try and broaden it out. Try to do the whole piece all at once without focusing on the individual elements. You know, this you can do this sitting in the meeting. You can focus just on the speaker. Focus just on those who are not speaking. Now focus on the whole group. You have to fuzz your intensity to do that. You have to sort of it's like a like a, a lens on a on a flashlight. As it expands out, it gets a little dimmer. But that's okay. And you'll see something. You'll see something, for example, in a business meeting with with the inter or at a family dinner or with the interrelatedness. You know, like one person moves and then another person moves. One person coughs, the other person coughs. One person yawns, another person yawns. One person makes a comment that's this way. Another person makes a comment that's that way. So that's a kind of a broadening. Uh, the meditative traditions are really attentional regulation traditions. And there's different ones out there. They all uh, have some degree of focus uh, or shift. And some of them have the broaden and narrow kind of thing as well. But so, like uh, something that I I teach uh, children to do, uh, and, and this is very easy, and it has a remarkable effect on kids. If you've got kids and they tend easily to get distracted or get in fights or something to happen, do a little bit of uh, of playtime around this. Have them focus on the sole of their left foot. And if they can do that for at least a minute without distraction, without moving off, try to keep it there for it goes pretty much without the little flickers of pulling away. But it takes a while. It takes weeks use them to get down to a minute. But now focus just on their right foot. Now focus on having two feet and the soles of their two feet. We've done research, and, and um, the person who developed this, Nurbe Singh, the editor of the journal uh, Mindfulness, a behavioral guy, worked with developmental disabilities and showed that kids who easily got in fights on the schoolyard and so forth, you do your little soles of the feet training, goes down like two-thirds, boom, they just stop getting in fights, which sort of suggests that some of the conflict that we have shows up inside our inability to attend to what's important and to shift. So, for example, let's say somebody's uh, dissing you, but it's really not of importance to focus on that. 
well, why couldn't you focus on something else? Not to eliminate and subtract, but to simply say, okay, got it. That's not of importance. I really don't give an F about that. I'm going to you know, end shift. So being able to come in the present moment, the importance of it, I think, is that's where we live. Once we're there, can we work on the attentional flexibility to take what's useful and leave the rest? And uh, that requires some skill. You can train it with things as far away from anxiety, sadness, depression, urges, suicidal thoughts, as far away from that as the feeling of the soles of your feet or following the breath, more common kind of thing with contemplative work. But I like playing around with it. And I think we, uh, I, 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 when I, if I'm now in the COVID era, I'm not doing this, but if I'm traveling through airports, I like uh, watching the broadening one. I do this little thing where you're walking through a, a business, you know, a busy uh, uh, area on the new, on the, on, in the airport and start walking side to side. Hundreds of yards away, people start adjusting. You start noticing how interconnected we are. And just playing around with uh, broaden, narrow, shift, or stay. Uh, you want to do it formally? Well, the meditation teachers will teach you how to do that. And really what you're teaching is how to come into the present moment in a way that's flexible, fluid, and voluntary and allows you to serve your interests rather than having your attention being jerked around by commercial folks who know how to do that to get you to buy things or by just what shows up inside your mind. You know, two things uh, that I love about this, it, it, it feels like it combines uh, yoga nidra and then like a body scanning in a way. And when I do guided meditations, I've noticed that the ones that I've, I'm staring away from are the law of attraction ones where it's like, breathe in love, breathe out hate. And for some reason, it didn't resonate with me because I'm like, now you got me thinking about hate. And whereas like with the body scan and tuning into, you know, my left foot or my right foot, it keeps me present. It doesn't trigger uh, other emotions for me. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you found that or if that resonates on some level. Oh, it does resonate. And, and, you know, there's a little subtle, the breathe out hate thing does two things. I, mean, I, I still would use that sometimes, but you got to be careful and have, make sure that people have the skills that they're not doing it in order to avoid anything, number one. And, and also with enough attentional flexibility that we don't actually serve this kind of churn of, uh, you know, now you got me thinking about hate kind of thing where, now that's in my mind, and I don't know what to do about it. So you, it's really only safe to do those kinds of uh, loving-kindness meditation, things like that, when you have enough attentional flexibility, emotional openness, cognitive flexibility. And you can do all of that in a way that's not avoidant and is values-based. It's about something bigger. Um, but it, I, I, too, I, I have to admit I'm... Of the contemplative practice traditions that are uh, a little harder for me, they're they're the same ones that are a little harder for you. Dr. Hayes, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think would be valuable to the listeners in terms of dealing with suicidality or feelings of loneliness or 
feeling like a burden or any hopelessness that someone might feel? Well, I think a big piece of this is that these same principles of emotional openness, of being able to watch your thoughts and step back from judgment, to focus on what's present in a way that's flexible, fluid, and voluntary. From this more spiritual part of you, we haven't talked about that too much, for values, purposes that you can put into your life, that you can actually live, those things can be socially extended. So, for example, loneliness, suicidality, etc., as we sort of disappear in our minds and start struggling there, you know, sometimes you may be doing that, you know, just literally inches away from somebody who's doing something similar and is really yearning for some kind of human connection. And, you know, you mentioned loneliness. It's an epidemic, really, in the modern world. And here's the irony. Uh, you know, people in big cities are lonely where they're walking by each other. And the person that you're not looking at, that you're looking down and away as you cross that crosswalk, and that other person's doing the same thing for fear of not being scary or looking weird, is lonely, too. You know, there's something sweet and sad about that. So I think if in terms of what we haven't talked about, if you can find that part of you that is beyond all of this, the part of you that's just witnessing and noticing and observing, the part of you that showed up when you're about three or four and infantile amnesia fell away and, and you're able to witness and observe, take a little time to look in the eyes of other people around you and see if you don't see a human being there. And consider the possibility that that person is actually really deep down very much like you. In fact, at some really deep level is uh, spiritually connected to you. And consider the possibility that you may be able to share a little bit about your journey and just how it is to be you and what you're up to, what you care about, what you struggle with, what hurts, what's hard to carry, and maybe take the time to listen, not just speak and hear whether or not the other person uh, is on a similar journey. And if so, uh, to me, that's sort of shows that there's something about this loneliness thing that's a little self-indulgent. You know, that, like, we're so grand, we're so special, we're so suffering. No, you're not. Suffering is as common as dirt. And if, and that's not meant to bring you down. It's meant to lift you up. I mean, we use we say words like humble. It means feet in the dirt. Humus, it's from the word meaning dirt. And so could you humble yourself a little bit, not be so great and grand in your suffering? Nobody's going to build a monument to your suffering. I'm sorry. No matter how much pain you've suffered, that's the human condition. Could you take a breath in, open your eyes, and reach out to others who maybe really could use that from you? Maybe very much like that note from the the physician who checked out by her own hand and see if it isn't so that uh, there's something here to do, which is being you whole and free and connecting with others uh, along this little journey we call life. And will anybody 
write a poem to that, remember that, build a monument to no, you're going to be forgotten. And while we're here, could we play together? Could we be kind to each other? Could we make a difference? Could we create something that's worthy of our moments? I don't know. Let's see. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Please, thank. first of all, thank you for taking this time to join us and to share your thoughts and ideas. Uh, and plug all your things. Where can people find you, find one of your, what have you written, like 44 books, a million books, a thousand <laughs> Books. <laughs> I feel it's about forty-six, but most of them are for head shrinkers and stuff. So there are some trade books. There's a one called "Get uh, Get Out of Your Mind in Your Life" that was uh, beat Harry Potter for one glorious week in the U.S. of A. back in two thousand and six, which is the first book on ACT. And then uh, there's one called "A Liberated Mind" that walks through all the data on psychological flexibility. We didn't use those those words here, but all these things we're talking about are part of that set, skill set, and um, it's available around the world in different you know translations and stuff. Uh, a liberated mind. If they just will, if folks are interested, just come to stephenchays.com. Stephen with a V, middle of so C H A Y E S. I won't spam you. I'll just send out some newsletters and stuff, and uh, it's a one-click opt-out if you ever get tired of hearing my voice, but. Uh, and if and if you're not interested in that, just Google acceptance and commitment therapy, and I bet you there's you'll see things happening around you, therapists and books and um, you know uh, audio, audible courses. I got an audible course coming out to tomorrow. Yeah, first day is tomorrow uh, on Amazon. So, but it's not just me. Uh, you know, I've started it, but I was a worldwide community of folks who are trying to use science to walk inside these ancient spaces, pull it at its joints, and figure out how to put it in its modern world because we need modern minds for this modern world we're in. And uh, I hope some of the things I just said give you a way forward. But if you kind of forget and you just say, uh, just remember the word act. Uh, ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy, you can find it by Googling it, what's out there, and a whole lot of things for free that can be useful to you. I appreciate that. You know, your book, uh, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, uh, it's, it's such a powerful book, and I encourage the listeners out there to pick that one up. Uh, when, you, when I look at the top Amazon review for that book, uh, it says, quote, this book changed my life. I was in the midst of the worst depression of my life, suicidal, didn't leave my apartment for weeks at a time, and couldn't afford a psychotherapist. One day I decided to go to the best psychotherapist in town for just one session to see what happens. I told him I couldn't afford to see him regularly, and he advised me to work through this book. It was a long process, but here I am five years later and with no depression um, and genuine, no-joke happiness all the time. This book helped me unblock uh, myself from all my negative thinking and take the steps necessary to live my best life. I cannot thank this author enough. This is an incredibly important book. It requires patience and diligence to reap the benefits. So, end quote. Um, amazing book. That's an amazing one, isn't it? And um, yeah, that you know, we've done studies on it. It's about two thirds of what you get from a course of therapy if you do the book. The way I suggest, if I could take just a minute, skim it, set it aside, skim it in one day. Don't do anything. Don't do any of the exercise. Just skim it really fast. 
set it aside for a couple, three days, and it'll start whispering to you if if you're in a space in your life where you're ready for it. And if you are, go back and now read it slowly. Try to do all the exercises. If you're bogged down, skip it. Come back. That'll take you a month. If you want to Google, there's there's uh, self-help books on uh, Facebook, etc. There's one called Act for the Public and Groups.io, free. People who are just doing that same journey have been going on for 10, 12 years. I mean, I get to know these people. They become amazingly useful to other people because they've been there. They've suffered. They know how it works. And there is a way forward. It turns out it's not the way out. It's the way in. And your mind doesn't know how to do it, but your heart does. And if you can find a way to be supported in it, you can find those places that fit with wisdom, the kind that you were talking about, Leo, that's it's all around you. You're not the only one. And uh, uh, find a way. Find a way. I appreciate it. And then last question I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Dr. Hayes? I'd say if you're, at, if you're at the end of your rope, if you've really done everything, if there's no other way forward, consider the possibility that there isn't a way out, but there is a way in. And what have you got to lose, dude? You can always go back and end it. But is it really true that you fully explored what it would be like to be fully yourself without trying to run from your thoughts and feelings and memories and bodily sensations, without trying to subtract your pain so that you can live? And maybe there's a, a, a maybe that solution that you've been pursuing is the problem. So you have an opportunity to learn something that nobody would otherwise learn. It would only happen if you're at the end of your rope, you've exhausted all alternatives, you've hit bottom. Okay, now it's time to begin. And if that interests you, look around. There's folks who will walk through hell with you to see what is it like to be yourself, whole and free, even with that kind of level of pain. And on the other side of that, who knows where that will go. But I, uh, no promises, no guarantees. You want to guarantee by a washing machine. But I can guarantee you this. There's a journey ahead of you, if you're willing to take it, that will be different than the journey behind you if it's in the service of, even with this level of pain, opening up as to how it would be to be a human being with that, carrying it forward. So your choice, uh, you know, I said earlier, I don't try to take away people's choice to kill themselves. I really think it's what makes this journey so freaking courageous that uh, it is hard to be human and life is a blast. I love that. That is both, right? It's both hard and a blast at the same time. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayes. Thank you so much, listeners. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you uh, reading uh, his books, for you going to the seminars, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 273-TALK. All those numbers are listed in the show notes as are Dr. Hayes' uh, books and information and contact will be listed in there. Uh, you can always go to Thrive with Leo 
Coaching.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayes. Thank you, Leo. It's awesome to chat with you about this. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself. And remember, today's episode was brought to you by Forever Me Apparel. Forever Me Apparel has their newest collection out right now. You can find it all on forevermeapparel.com. At forevermeapparel.com, they are open and always looking to help support mental health. Keep fighting and keep swimming. It only gets better. Get your beanie, shirts, and hoodies, and bags over at forevermeapparel.com.